You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? Hello, this is the Reverend Gail Lindsay Mariner from the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Santa Fe and the Interfaith Leadership Alliance, turning the tables this evening and interviewing Rabbi Neil. Neil, science and religion mm-hmm. are often, though not always, seen as incommensurable frames of understanding about the cosmos and the place of humankind within that cosmos. As both a rabbi and an astrophysicist, Mm. how do you navigate the tensions between your religious faith and science? Or do you experience tension? My journey for this has really developed, actually. I used to say when I was at university studying astrophysics, I used to say that science covers the what and religion covers the why. Um, And that got me out of any possible tension by saying they're talking about two totally different Mm -hmm. things. Science breaks things down and and religion opens things up. And and so I was very comfortable with that for a long time. Uh, Once I got to the final year of astrophysics, I really started to realize science doesn't actually have all the what. Um, a lot of what we were looking at was deeply theoretical, and um, and we spent a lot of our lectures saying, we think it's this, but we don't know. And that really got me to re-question science and how I had taken science to be always truthful. And I think science is truthful and is extremely important, um, but in its own milieu. Um, so for a while, I, I went from there to a, a sort of skepticism of science. And I actually um, then for uh, uh, I spent uh, three months in Jerusalem and I started studying under somebody called Jerry Schroeder, who wrote uh, who's a Harvard, MIT nuclear physicist. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a book called Genesis and the Big Bang. And he said, look, there's no discrepancy between the two. If you use Einstein's relativity frames, then you can explain the Big Bang in six days or 16 billion years. It's the same thing. And I was totally caught up in this. And so instead of saying that they were two different things, suddenly I was saying they're both the same, uh, but, uh, but they're both the same because they can prove the same thing. And it took a while until I read a number of books that showed me that actually the way that Schroeder had used Einsteinian relativity theory was terrible. And I should have realized from my astrophysics days, but I got so caught up in it. And so I think for me, then I I moved away from all of that to a, a very different sense of balance between science and religion in the sense that I think they're both saying the same thing, which is. Um, an answer to the question, why am I here? Or how did I get here? And then further from that, we can take, so what do I do now that I'm here? Mm-hmm. So for me, in some sense, when we read in, in Deuteronomy, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the eternal is our God, the eternal is one. That's a statement about being, not a statement about God. It's a statement about our being in the world. And so for me, that statement actually says pretty much the same thing as E equals MC squared, for example. They're both saying we are here in the world. We're trying to make sense of how we got here in the world. 
their approaches are different. Um, sure, science analyzes in a different way and does break things down into its well, constituent and, parts. And focuses on, on uh, a different segment of the human experience, I think. I, I think that's true, although it's interesting how much in a scientific society now where, in which we live, how much we often take our religion and, and turn it into a sort of religio-scientific this is the truth. This is the one way. This is here is my source text. This is the proof. Therefore, um, and we become dogmatic, actually, I think, as a result of that. About our religion or about our science or about both? Probably about both. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's important for us, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, as, a, as an astrophysicist, science is really important. And we uh, ignore science at our peril. Um, and and we see this today, people saying, well, that's just your opinion. Um, you know, it, that's just the opinion of scientists and so on. I think it's really important to take those opinions of scientists and say they were well-researched. Let's, let's go forward mm. with that. But that doesn't mean that science says everything about everything. And so we have to be careful not to be dogmatic, not only with our religion, but also with our science. Okay. Well, thank you. So science is has been in the news of late and so also have issues around gender. Mm -hmm. And I know that your rabbinical thesis was on gender identity in Judaism. And you spoke about it oh, back before the winter holidays. And you suggested that the binary construction of gender as Judaism has embodied it is core to the faith's understanding, self-understanding. And at the same time, it's really pretty problematic in the 21st century. You unpacked the importance of boundaries and distinct categories in Jewish thought, and you argued that if each person is created by God and is in God's image, then their gender identity and sexual orientation ought to be celebrated mm -hmm. rather than being shamed or corrected or, or ignored. And further, you stated that reconciling the tension between crisply bounded gender identities constructed in traditional Jewish thought and the more fluid gender identities that we're learning to see and acknowledge becomes a central challenge in the viability of Judaism. Mm. Wow. That is a, <laughs> that's a huge statement, and it, and it seems really relevant in this moment. Say more, if you would. Well, the... The Bible starts um, with a particular theological reference frame um, that, and this was the work in my thesis that suggests that mixture is divine, but the human realm is very separated. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why mixture is so abhorrent in biblical thought. So you can't mix seeds together. You can't mix animals together as they're plowing. You can't mix fibers together in your clothes. So distinctions between differing things, particularly polar opposites, become central to biblical theology. Mm -hmm. So you have day and night, man and woman, um, kosher, unkosher, holy, profane. Um, I can't think light and but darkness. That's enough, yeah. Right, absolutely. It, it's always there that if you're either this or you're that. And um, and I think that became essential in um, our, the, the Bible's understanding of gender. And that's something that many of us, uh, most of us, have inherited as an assumption about gender. Right. And it was extraordinary to me when I was researching this thesis to see other cultures around the world 
how they have a totally different understanding of gender. And these are usually um, communities where, or countries where biblical thought is not um, as celebrated as it is in, in traditional Western right, culture. It's not part of the intellectual DNA of that, of that community or that culture. Right. And, and for me, I'd always been brought up to believe there's only two genders because look at, you know, look at how bodies are made. Mm-hmm. And learning that, in fact, the number of people who are intersex um, who are born somewhere in between uh, was really startling to me and challenged me to my very core and actually changed who I am as a Jew very profoundly because the while biblical thought has a very clear boundary rabbinic thought starts exploring the hermaphrodite um, and, and has these different terms and it becomes clear to me after reading all their research that they didn't really know what they were talking about. And what they were doing was they were proving the rule. They were looking at this exception and they were saying, where does this person fit? In some senses, they should be masculine or treated as a male. In some sense, they should be treated as a female. Um, But at no point was rabbinic Judaism, early rabbinic Judaism of 2000 years, able to say, or somewhere in between. Right. We need a third category. Right. Um, And and for me, seeing the the fact that people nowadays are moving from one gender to another in the eyes of the law as well, um, really, for me, provides a very important challenge to Judaism, which is where are we here? Do we continue a particular gender spectrum um, of or a lack of spectrum, I guess, a bipolar um, border? Or actually, do we open up to a gender spectrum? And if we open up to a gender spectrum, What does that mean for all of our Judaism beforehand? Right. All of those ideas about about mixture and separation that sort of undergird so much of the thought. And as a Reformed Jew, for me, it's important that we celebrate the past and that we live in the present. But at the same time, I actually think this is one of the most fundamental challenges to to, to the whole Jewish endeavor. I don't think it will affect the viability of Judaism in the sense that there will always be Jews. Mm -hmm. But I think it will affect the vitality of Judaism and the relevance of Judaism as we start to become much more of a global community and realize that not everybody thinks the same way that we do. And really try to understand that doesn't mean that we're right and they're wrong and they still have to learn. But actually, maybe we are carrying certain assumptions and holding them in the way we lead our lives. And that means all the way into the synagogue or the church or or any place of worship. What are the theological underpinnings that create a social identity that we've actually actually created ourselves as opposed to saying, well, this is how the world is. So there's a a fascinating um, reflexivity happening here where uh, we typically think of theology being over on one side and culture and Mm. um, science being on the other side. But in truth, they're all informing one another. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's interesting to go back to your first question. We often see science and religion as having been in conflict. And we think of, you know, um, we think of famous examples of, of people who are imprisoned or put on trial like Galileo for, for Galileo is the most obvious mm-hmm. example of, of the conflict between Michael science Servetus. and religion. Right. Here, I think what I'm talking about is the fact that 
our religion influences our science and influences our worldview sometimes without us realizing it mm -hmm. so that we can say, well, look, the world exists in these two categories, A and B. People exist, male or female. But look, isn't the animal world weird that there are so many creatures that are either intersex or can literally change sex mm -hmm. and we say well we can't obviously unless you go undergo surgery or something like that but we think why is it that the whole of the rest of the natural world would be weird and we are somehow totally different mm -hmm. that has to be based on an underlying theology of of us being special unique created in god's image being understood in a particular way that i think maybe isn't so healthy anymore well and of course what I'm gesturing towards is that it doesn't matter which lens is your initial lens. Being aware that you are either looking through your theological lens or through your scientific lens is a really important um, piece of, of being authentic to both mm. and, and moving them to that conversation with one another that lets us move forward in a pretty complicated culture and, and it is it's it is difficult it's, it's very challenging I uh, really changed my entire Jewish being in the course of a year as a result of writing this thesis what was it 15 years ago mm -hmm. um, I really understood that that the assumptions I had made um, were informing the answers I would find right. um, and the and the religious practice that I engaged in and so I think for me I it's been very powerful to to reflect back and say, now where do we go? Now I've been challenged by that. Where do we go with that? Because because it's not enough just to be woken up and say, okay, you know, there is more to the world than this. We actually need to be able to say, now how do how does Judaism respond to this? And that's a very big challenge. Thank you. I think at this point we are to take a brief break. This we have been talking with Rabbi Neil Amswich on Soul Searching here at KSFR. We'll be back shortly. This is the Reverend Gail Lindsay Mariner. I'm interviewing Rabbi Neil Amswich here on KSFR on the Soul Searching program. And at this point, um, we're taught we've been talking about the complexity of science and religion and the interface between the two of them. But religion itself is, is, or all religions are very complicated mm. um, constructs and, and stories and sets of rituals. On the Temple Beth Shalom website, your congregation identifies as part of Reform Judaism. Mm -hmm. What is it about this branch of Judaism that has spoken to you over the years? Why do you find your home here? How does it inform these other questions we've been talking about? It's interesting. The more I, the longer I am a Jew, the longer I'm a Reform Rabbi. The longer I realize I dislike the term Reform Judaism. Mm -hmm. um, it's not reformed, as in once changed uh, and um, and now we carry on what was changed, but Reform Judaism, which means it is Judaism that constantly changes. So you could say reforming, reforming Judaism. If, if gen well, gerunds were <laughs> right. I think for me that the issue is Judaism has always been reforming. Mm -hmm. So for me, it should just be called Judaism. The norm of Judaism is that it develops, that it changes. The norm of every religion is that it develops mm -hmm. and changes. It would be abhorrent to me for us to be engaging in animal sacrifice in a temple. I, I don't know I could be part of that. And that's fine because Judaism, after the destruction of the temple, underwent an enormous change. 
and, um, and keeps undergoing changes. So for me, being a Reformed Jew is being real with those changes and saying, as the world develops, my religious practice has to develop and my theology has to develop. And I think that comes back to what we were talking about before. So for me, I think what speaks to me about this is that it's real. Um, Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan, who ended up essentially founding the Reconstructionist movement, said a really important sentence um, that is, has been taken on by reformed liberal Jews all around the world, which is, the past has a vote, not a veto, um, which is such a lovely phrase because it, it's important for us. Ju reformed Judaism is about holding tradition and modernity together. Um, not about denying modernity in the face of tradition and not about throwing out traditions saying that's totally antiquated and mm. we don't need any of that because we're Jews today. But it's somewhere in between. And so whenever we, we look at a ritual custom or whenever we have an educational series, we always say what was in the past? What was it that we learned? What was it that we did? And now is that still relevant to us today? And that for me is it's, it's, it's exciting because it's engaging. And I think the other aspect of Reform Judaism that appeals to me so much is that it's about asking questions, not about giving answers. Um, it's not my place to tell people what to believe or how to think. Um, I actually think that's almost an abuse of clergy responsibility. Mm -hmm. For me, the reason that a lot of people come to Judaism in particular is because I, they say to me, you know, what does this mean? Or I don't understand. You know, let me ask this question. And I'll say, that's a great question. Um, now, where and, do we go say, to look the answer? for answers? Yeah. Say, okay, well, well, then let's explore the answers of our tradition. Do any of those answers appeal to you? If not, maybe you have an answer. And it's helping people find their answers as well through the lens of the tradition. Lovely. Sounds like a, an exciting and exhausting sometimes uh, kind of a path. It can be. <laughs> and it, it segues really into one of the other things. We were talking a minute ago about um, the importance of being able to move forward and to find ways to act with, you know, on the answers that you discover to the questions that you're asking. And uh, For generations, the United States has advocated a separation between religion and politics, mm -hmm largely to keep government from meddling in religious matters, mm -hmm. but also to limit religious organizations um, so that they don't enforce their particular theological frame on people who have different beliefs. Now, you're active here in Santa Fe in a number of um, arenas. Mm -hmm. you're, you've advocated for science education standards. You've worked hard on environmental issues. You write letters to the editor. You were sort of out in the forefront when the ILA and the, the Interfaith Leadership Alliance mm -hmm. and the mayor hosted the anti-racism rally last August. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about your understanding on what a healthy relationship between religion and politics might look like. It's an interesting question, especially because I've been in this country three and a half years and mm -hmm. I'm still trying to make sense of the political scene. Absolutely. Uh, and I have to tread very carefully because if I come into a country and say, well, this is terrible and this is wrong, then people say, OK, good, leave. If you don't like it, go away. On the other hand, because you've been here just three years, you have kind of that outsider's lens Correct. that would give you a really different take on it, I think, than some of us who grew up here 
and just this is the system we know. I think so. And I think what's fascinating for me is in Santa Fe, people listen to clergy. Um, at least some people do, um, which um, was is very exciting for me, actually. Um, and I don't mean that just in an arrogant way. I understand my own personal things here. But but I think the I think the issue here is about religion being a moral voice. Um, and for me, I guess the question about religion being involved in politics only really comes about because of this idea that so many people have that religion is about the other world, mm. that it is another worldly endeavor, that we're trying to get to another world. For me, Judaism is profoundly about this world. If there's another world afterwards, fine, great. It's the icing. Right, right. But I'm not going to work towards that. In fact, if I did, it wouldn't be sincere anyway. So for me, religion is about making this world the best place possible. And a lot of faith traditions have um, a view of the idealized world. And these things don't just happen by magic, by miracle, that God looks at the world and says, oh, well, it's all terrible. I'm going to fix it all. That's, that's not how it works. So for me, this engaging in, in what's called tikkun olam and repairing the world mm -hmm. is, is profoundly religious. So it reminds me of the biblical idea, the triumvirate of leadership of the prophet, the king and the priest, that they had to exist together that you had to have the moral voice, you had to have the person in charge of the politics, basically, and you had to have the person who was helping lead the community. Now, interestingly, I'd say in the modern age, a lot of clergy have to take on two roles, the, almost the prophet and the priest. But we'd also like the king to be prophetic as well. And I think for me, part of the role of clergy or part of the role of religion in the political realm is to remind people, set a moral tone. Let, let's be really clear on your moral vision. And, and then we can discuss those moral visions. I can pull out Isaiah chapter 58, where it says, you know, where he's rebuking the people um, who are fasting on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement. And he says, is, is this the fast that I desire? Isn't it in fact this, to bring the homeless into your home and to shelter those who need it and, and to welcome the stranger, all of those things? And, and you can't do that without politics. Politics is being involved in the world and making society run better. So for me, when, we, when, when the Bible says, or, or when, you know, uh, Mishnah, the, the rabbin, first rabbinic commentary says, seek peace and pursue it. When, when we have this throughout our, our texts, seek peace doesn't just mean be friendly in your community. It means go out in the world and seek peace. Pursue it means actively run after it. And you have to be involved in the political realm for that. So one of the big challenges, of course, is that we don't all agree on exactly what that um, grounding morality ought to look like. And one of the challenges, and one of the things that makes interfaith conversations mm. so rich and so important, is coming to the place where we understand where we um, agree mm -hmm. and where we don't agree, and we figure out how to navigate those differences in ways that still honor one idea, one another's core beliefs. And I, th I think following on from that, I think you make a really important point, which is I, I don't want the role of religion in politics to be to tell people what to do. Mm -hmm. I think that's inappropriate. But I think we are 
able to represent a section of the community and say this is what we value or this is who we value and 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 allow anyone in the political realm to say i hear from you who are religiously liberal and you who are religiously conservative thank you for your input now i will make a decision i think that's the the healthy well i think the other place the, the other thing that might be healthy kind of draws on something you were saying a few minutes ago that your role as rabbi is about supporting people in asking questions mm. and then helping them look for the places they can find the answers and helping them really think about what are the criteria for a good question? Mm. What are the criteria for a good answer? And if the only role of religion in politics were to be really helping our elected leaders and the people who elect them, ask the really good questions and ground their answers in, in really good sources, mm. we might do a world of good. Absolutely. Um, and, but I think there's also, hearing you reflect that back, there's an extra <coughs> element, mm -hmm. which is it's healthy for people engaged in religious communities to remember it's not just in your building, or mm -hmm. it's not just at, by the bedtime when you say your evening prayers. You know, religion is is not just about your own personal relationship with God or divinity or right. yourself. It is actually about doing. We we do religion. We don't just we practice believe religion. Right. Um, and Judaism for us, the 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 verb savav, which is to command. We have mitzvot, which are commandments. It's not things that we believe. It's things that we do. And and so Judaism is a particularly, for me, particularly active religion and reform Judaism, even more so, I would say, because our role is is looking within and helping those within our community and, and looking out and helping those outside our community and being aware that that is because we live in a relationship with God. However, we understand God. That is our Jewish living, essentially. Well, and we live in relationship with our neighbors. Mm. And we um, embody or enact our understanding of our theological commitments in relationship to one another. I mean, it's one right. of the things Unitarian Universalists and Reform Judaism have in common is this emphasis on, on living your belief in the world. And I think that phrase that you said, theological commitments, that's it. Theology isn't about belief. When, when you... If you truly believe in some kind of God, there is a response. There has to be a response. However you understand God, there must be an actual response from you. Otherwise, that belief doesn't mean anything. It's just something theoretical. And so, therefore, to believe is to do. Uh, and so, hopefully, our our religious belief is something which pushes us forward. And that's and that's why Temple Beth Shalom is is so keen on social justice, why we um, are so present in the town in, in social justice matters, because it is a practical implementation of exactly what you say, our theological commitment. Theological commitments. Well, we have just a couple minutes mm. left, so let's whet the listeners' appetites. I know you are working on a book. Oh, uh, yes. Do you want to just give us a two-minute teaser about what the book is about? A, a very quick teaser. It's a, a critique of modern environmentalism, um, which I think has failed. Um, I think people have done extraordinary things on the local level, but on the national and international level, we're doing too little too late. 
And so this is a perspective, a reflection from a theological perspective again, um, particularly looking at things like hope and the disempowerment of hope. The idea that if you just hope everything will be better, turn off the lights and everything will be fine. And, and it's not enough. Um, and, and the shocking theological response, um, and I'll look through differing biblical narratives um, to ask, where are we? If we were to compare ourselves to biblical characters, which one would it be in the current environmental crisis? Fascinating. I hope we get to hear more about that before it uh, hits the press. I hope so. Thank you. I hope so. So this is this has been Gail Lindsay Mariner, minister at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Santa Fe, interviewing Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom on soul searching here at KSFR. It's been great fun to turn the tables on you, my friend. Thank you. Me too. Thank you. <laughs>